And welcome to Here We Stand. I am regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Welcome to all of you. It's May the 16th. Today, what does it mean to resist? What does it mean to resist not only the external tyranny in our life, but within, those things within us that hold us back from reclaiming our liberty, reclaiming our minds? That's going to be part of what we talk about today. And we've been doing a combination of different shows live and previous shows in order to ram home the lessons that we've acquired over the last year, especially resisting the COVID police state, a movement that spans the globe. And the emergence of the new society alongside the decline of the old is something we're seeing everywhere. For those who are listening for the first time, we're here every Sunday, 3 p.m. Pacific at the BBS Radio Network. And you can follow the work. Murderbydecree.com gives a lot of important background and a lot of my books. And republicofcanada.ca is where you can find our active work building the common law republic in Canada and around the world. You can also write to me, and please do. I love the feedback. It's angelfire101 at protonmail.com. And we're going to base the show today on some feedback I've been getting from all of you about the kinds of things you'd like to focus on. So this is for those of you who have requested this especially. Those of you who keep fighting and don't give in to all of the dark forces aimed our way. Now, the general question, how do we fight back and resist? We know generally it's not by feeding the energy of our adversary on its ground, but by separating from it into a new existing reality, something that's already there. It's Often they're just first in our hearts and minds, but it takes flesh around us in the world the more we live in it. It's an energy struggle. And, of course, our good buddy Sun Tzu in The Art of War goes into that a lot. His famous quote, whoever controls the chi of a situation will win the battle no matter how large the adversary. And we've learned that from experience. We don't follow the terrain or the issue or the narrative set by our adversary. We establish our own terrain. It's worked in the past. It works now. And, you know, this is something that strikes home when I look around at folks who are continually sending me stuff. For example, I got something yesterday from a woman who said, Kevin, we're suing the different COVID agencies in the Supreme Court of Ontario. And I wrote back and I said, well, A, the Supreme Court of Ontario isn't open. And B, it, no crown agency, or rather no crown court, can bring an indictment against a crown official or its agencies. So, you know, it's like battering their heads against the wall, but it's they learn behavior. of They only know what they've learned in in the past. They only know their own life experience, which has been controlled by this corporate system. They're thinking in the box, in other words. And it's fine to say, let's think outside the box, but we realize that that doesn't happen until we have no other alternative. Those of us who have the fortune to have our life ruined and destroyed and are forced to start again and look at our old assumptions, we have an advantage. We see through the the way that the system predominantly operates, which is through lies and deception. We know the power of the system is largely illusory, but you don't have that knowledge until you go up against it, as we did time and again when we confronted church and state over their crimes, and time and again they backed off, even though there were only a few of us doing it, because we owned our own chi, and that's the key issue. Now today, we're going to hear from a number of people, including our good buddy, um, Mr. Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, author of Civil Disobedience in the 1840s in America, the first one who really said we have a duty not to obey government when it clashes with our conscience. And he has this great line, 
never resign your conscience to legislation. We're not even dealing with legislation these days, of course. There's no court or parliament or legislature that approve these COVID measures, only some faceless bureaucrat. And it's interesting, the whole thing, uh, and before we get on to Thoreau's uh, discussion of civil disobedience and the nature of politics, um, I just wanted to mention that um, <laughs> the the whole experience these days is that you know, when you're walking down the street and you see people wearing these funny muzzles over their face and deliberately suffocating themselves because a stranger told them to, it's not so much people are brainwashed. I mean, that's a factor, but people, it's more of an energetic issue. People become what they serve and they worship. And look at what we're becoming. We're even becoming the appearance of the idol that we've worshipped and relied on for so many centuries. This corporate system that's enslaving us, in fact, is emerging from us. When people go around with a muzzle on their face, they are carrying on the appearance of that which they've worshipped. They have no voice. They have no identity. That's their life. That's the manifestation of what they've served. And there's that great uh, quote, actually, you find it all through the Bible in the, in the Old Testament, the prophets, and Jesus talks about it too, where he says that you be, basically you become what you worship. You become the idol you've served. And look at anyone walking down the street. They even look like the adult now. They don't have a face, they don't have an appearance, they don't have a voice. Well, that's an evolution in the wrong direction. And we've got to tilt that in the other direction, reclaim our energy, rip off the muzzles in every sense, not just physically. We're going to uh, start that today by looking at, and we're going to hear a number of, uh, just a couple of clips first on um, who Thoreau was, his whole idea of civil disobedience, and how it came really not simply out of a desire not to pay taxes to the government and resist it. More fundamentally, it had to do with reclaiming our own sovereignty, our personal sovereignty. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about how sovereignty has a personal, a spiritual, a political dimension. But for Thoreau, it began with reclaiming our own sense of self and identity and mind. And that's really, you know, what we're going to do today on the show. We're going to start with that personal sovereignty and lead into the bigger question which is how to recognize that there's a revolution going on around us in the world and how to become part of that revolution. It's divine in nature. It's, it consists of shaping our own ground of battle rather than being shaped by it. And we're going to get into the second half of the show uh, into a discussion that based on a reflection I did just before the COVID thing broke out. In, uh, I did a series of sermons for the Covenanters, which is a spiritual movement I'm a minister of, and that reflection will talk about John the Baptist announcing that the old world is cut down and a new one is emerging, like a slash-and-burn spirituality where the old has to be cut down for the ground to be seeded with something new, so new growth can appear. We're going to get into that in the second half. And it's a very exciting topic because it, it's all in our hands. It means that we are the ones who can determine our future now, not the idol that we have served up until now. Don't forget, if there's a judgment on us, we've created it ourselves because of our choices and our decisions. Involuntary sterilizations, involuntary drug testing, forced vaccinations, none of that is new. That's been going on to Native people in Canada and around the world for over 150 years and many centuries before that. Now it's blowing back on us. We shouldn't be surprised by this, how the machine consumes anyone who serves it. We're dealing with the consequences of that, but there's a way out. And that's what we're going to, we'll talk about today on the show. So first we're going to hear from uh, a, a, just a reflection 
on who Henry Thoreau was, his notion of politics and personal sovereignty and civil disobedience. And we'll be back after that. Most of the time, successful modern life involves lots of technology, constantly being connected with other people, working very hard for as much money as possible, and doing what we're told. So it may come as a surprise that some of the best advice about modern life comes from an unemployed writer who lived alone in the woods and refused to pay his taxes. Henry David Thoreau reminds us about the importance of simplicity, authenticity, and downright disobedience. He was born in 1817 in Concord, an unassuming town west of Boston. His father was a pencil maker, and his mother took in boarders. He attended Harvard College in 1833, yet he rejected the ordinary career paths like law, medicine, or the church. Then Thoreau struck up a remarkable friendship with the American transcendentalist philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. Transcendentalism is a philosophy that emphasizes the importance of the spiritual over the material when it comes to leading a fulfilling life. Emerson and his transcendentalism had a huge influence on Thoreau. Moreover, Emerson helped Thoreau find a place where he could focus on his writing. The older man owned a plot of land in the woods surrounding the nearby Walden Pond, and in 1845 he allowed Thoreau to build a small cabin there, three by four and a half meters. In his two years in the cabin, Thoreau penned the first draft of his most notable work, Walden, or Life in the Woods, which was eventually published in 1854. It would become an inspirational text about self-discovery. Thoreau argued that his escape to Walden Pond was not simply a relaxing retreat to the forest. He settled there to live deep and suck out the marrow of life, as he put it. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. After some time in the cabin, Thoreau discovered a different, more conscious lifestyle. To begin with, he concluded that we actually need very few things. He suggested that we think about our belongings in terms of how little we can get by with, rather than how much we can get. He managed to sustain himself on only one day of work a week. He pointed out that walking the distance of a thirty-mile train journey took a day, but working to earn the money to pay for the same journey would take more than a day. Like his friend Emerson, Thoreau deeply valued what he called self-reliance. He distrusted society and the progress it claimed to have made. The civilized man has built a coach, he said, but has lost the use of his feet. He felt that economic independence from other people and from the government was crucial. And while he understood that we need companionship from time to time, he felt that too often we use others' company to fill gaps in our inner life that we're afraid to confront. The task of learning to live alone was for Thoreau not so much about carrying out daily chores as it was about becoming a good companion for oneself, relying first and foremost on oneself for friendship, intimacy, and moral guidance. Insist on yourself, never imitate. He wrote. Most of all, one should change oneself before seeking to change the world. Thoreau also viewed technology as an often unnecessary distraction. He saw the practical benefits of new inventions. But he also warned that these innovations couldn't address the real challenges of personal happiness. Our inventions are wont to be pretty toys, which distract our attention from serious things. We are in great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. Thoreau believed we should instead look to nature 
which is full of spiritual significance. He thought of animals, forests and waterfalls as inherently valuable both for their beauty and their role in the ecosystem. We can best understand ourselves as a part of nature. We should see ourselves as nature looking into nature rather than an external force or the master of nature. Most of all, nature provides the meaning that money and technology and other people's opinions cannot by teaching us to be humble and more aware, by fostering introspection and self-discovery. This mental state, and not money or technology, provides real progress. Thoreau optimistically declared, Only that day dawns to which we are awake. There is more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star. Perhaps the best testament of the value of Thoreau's individual contemplation and personal authenticity is that his ideas lead him to powerful political conclusions. Thoreau argued that people are morally obliged to challenge a government that upholds hypocritical or flagrantly unfair laws. So Thoreau turned to what he called civil disobedience, peacefully resisting immoral laws in protest. In July 1846, he withheld payment of his poll tax duty to avoid paying for the Mexican-American war and slavery. I ask for not at once no government, but at once a better government, he wrote after spending the night in jail. It was not until it was picked up by subsequent reformers that his essay, Civil Disobedience, became one of the most influential pieces of American political philosophy in history, influencing Gandhi, Martin Luther King and the anti-Nazi resistance. Despite his time as a hermit, Thoreau teaches us how to approach our frighteningly vast, highly interconnected and morally troubling modern society. He challenges us to be authentic, not just by avoiding material life and its distractions, but by engaging with the world and withdrawing our support for the government when we believe it's acting unjustly. His works endure and remind us of just how important it is to remove the distractions of money, technology and other people's views in order to live according to our best and truest nature. In March 1845, the United States acquired a new president, James K. Polk, a forceful, aggressive political outsider, intent on strengthening his country and asserting its preeminence in front of other world powers, especially Mexico and Great Britain. Within a year of his inauguration, he had declared full-scale war on Mexico because of squabbles over the Texan border, and was soon rattling his sabre at Britain over the ownership of Oregon. To complete the picture, Polk was a vigorous defender of slavery, who dismissed the arguments of abolitionists as naive and sentimental. Polk was a popular president, admired by many for his gung-ho manner, but a sizable minority of the citizenry disliked him intensely. One especially committed opponent was a writer from Massachusetts, called Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau is now a canonical American literary figure, studied in every high school for his lyrical masterpiece, Walden. But there is another, more political side to Thoreau, now usually airbrushed out of his story, which came to the fore in relation to the president. Thoreau quickly realised that he was opposed to everything Polk stood for. He hated what became the Mexican-American War, instinctively siding with the losing Mexican side. He was wary of Polk's squabbles with Britain and was appalled by the administration's policy of hunting down and returning runaway slaves to their masters in the South. Thoreau's anger against his president found its impassioned expression in an essay he published in 1849, now known as Civil Disobedience. At the heart of the essay is the question of what an honest citizen should do about a president he or she wholeheartedly opposes. 
the prevailing view was that because Polk had won a majority, those who were against him should now fall silent. It should, it was often said, be the duty of a good citizen to fold away their objections and just respect the will of the majority. But this was precisely the point Thoreau wished to probe and upturn. He suggested that true patriots were not those who blindly followed their administration. They were those who followed their own consciences, and in particular, the principles of reason. Thoreau wished to redistribute prestige away from blinkered obedience towards independent thought. What marked out a noble citizen of the Republic, a real American, was not, in Thoreau's view, that they respectfully shut up, but that they thought for themselves every day of an administration's life. On the basis of just this kind of independent thinking, Thoreau signaled a radical opposition to Polk's term. He denounced the Mexican-American War, the repatriation of slaves, and the outlook of the government more generally. And so as to underline his opposition, Thoreau held back payment of his taxes. In July 1846, he walked into Concord, Massachusetts to get his shoes repaired and was promptly arrested and thrown into the town's jail. Thoreau saw nothing undignified about spending some time behind bars. As he wrote, Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is a prison. All machines have their friction, Thoreau admitted, but when injustice is too great, you should let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. Thoreau didn't advocate the non-payment of taxes as a rule, and in fact, a well-meaning aunt soon paid his bill. The non-payment was just one example of the many non-violent ways that a democratically elected government could and should be resisted whenever its actions veer into aggression or unreason. An election may settle who the president might be, but it doesn't determine that everything the president does is right or that one should simply do nothing until the next election. Above all, Thoreau hated political passivity. Sarcastically, he wrote, There are thousands who are, in opinion, opposed to slavery and to the war, who yet, in effect, do nothing to put an end to them, who, esteeming themselves children of Washington and Franklin, sit down with their hands in their pockets and say that they know not what to do and do nothing. This would not be Thoreau's way. How does it become a man to behave towards this American government today? I answer that he cannot without disgrace be associated with it. Thoreau argued that the citizen must never just resign his conscience to the legislation and put himself at the service of some unscrupulous man in power. Thoreau mocked that most legislators, politicians, lawyers, ministers and office holders are as likely to serve the devil without intending it as God. Thoreau would not be such a servant. This most American of writers knew exactly whom it was right for him to serve, his own mind and conscience. And we're back. Beautiful. And I think, you know, when he says a true American, we're talking about a true citizen of a republic, wherever that is. And I always like to say with people in Canada that Maybe it's my American half speaking all the time, because to me it's natural to talk in terms of, well, we don't have to obey laws if we don't agree with them, if they're not right. It seems natural to me. I was raised that way to think in those terms. And it's very strange working with people in Canada or Canada. And no matter how determined they seem to be to oppose what's going on, their mind is still very much stuck in the British monarchical notion that authority comes from on high, 
whether it's heaven or earth. And that's a strange notion, by the way, of God being up there rather than in here somewhere in our own hearts and minds. But be that as it may, um, Canadians have that whole colonial notion that they haven't been able to get rid of. They've modernized it, but it's the same idea, that they're dependent on something or someone else. And we found that right away when we began to hold civil disobedience workshops in our republic assemblies over the last year across Canada. And people would say time and again, well, by what right do we pass our own laws? We say, well, by the right inherently within you to determine what laws you're going to live under. You can do that. It's not the government's job to do that. It's up to you to establish the terms of the law in your own neighborhood. In other words, to govern yourselves. And that's interesting. It was the original ancient Greek notion where citizens would gather and they would pass lots around and they would, uh, from a lottery system, determine who's going to be the judge, who's going to be the legislature that month, right? Everybody had to take responsibility, in other words. That's very different than, quote, representative democracy, where you sign away everything to some stranger and then they think and act for you and you have to obey. That's the old European feudal notion of operating, and that's a big burden we have to get out from under in Canada. Now, one of the ways we do that, of course, is by learning total realism, and that's what Thoreau talks about. He looks at the situation as it is, not as we would like to imagine it is. And when the fellow who was narrating mentioned to live intentionally, that means you don't get swept along by convention or other people's opinion. You know what's right, and you live according to that conscience. And insist on yourself, never imitate. It, you know, when you think of the implications of living that way, it's mind-boggling to people who live in, in a slave culture. Now, I go into this to some degree, and I want to refer people to my manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers, which you can get on Amazon under Kevin Annett, along with my 17 other books. One of the sections in the book has to do, it's called Depositing Your Illusions and Learning Total Realism. And one of the most difficult parts of learning to live either in a police state or as someone trying to tell the truth is that we have to reassess our entire worldview because nothing makes sense anymore. Long before we got exiled from the world we know, and that's how many of us feel these days, where we don't recognize what we're living under, we're in exile, our sense of reality starts to crumble and can be very confusing, disorienting. Because once you go up against the system, There'll be no help from you, from any of the sources you once expected, from the police, the media, the courts. When people say, oh, we've taken a case to court, Kevin, it's their old habitual thinking rather than critical conscious thinking kicking in. Somebody else will take care of you if you go through the channels. Well, you'll very quickly discover up close that that system doesn't work. It serves them, not you. And then you have to choose to go up against it. And that's an agonizing discovery. Because we rejected it first. It's the kind of denial that comes when we face death. It can't be happening. You get angry. You denial. You get angry against the people doing it, which is why a number of people in our assemblies turn against me and others who are arguing for this, because they don't want to have to make that break. It's a process of dying to the old and to ourselves. But we find that those people who can make the transition are people capable of realizing their situation, and they find the inner strength. Gandhi once said that whoever seeks truth must be as humble as dust. And that's not kind of a fake modesty or a, a, a you know religious contrivance about the need to be humble. No, it's a very practical necessity because a commander in battle must be humble, realizing they don't have all the answers. They must watch as the situation develops and learn from the battle itself. Otherwise, you get bushwhacked and destroyed. So 
a realistic approach to not cooperating with the system is that we learn as we go. We don't have answers in the blueprint. And that's one of the critical lessons of a, of a leader, to be able to do that, being honest with ourselves and with the situation. Once you've done that, though, you realize that there's only one thing that the system understands, and that's stopping their machine. As Thoreau said, your life must be a counter-friction to halt the machine. Now, we find that's easier to do in practice than you realize. Your fear keeps you back from realizing that. We find that all you have to do is have a few of you not willing to cooperate anymore and actively go in to disrupt their machine, and it starts falling apart. We found that when we started occupying churches about their genocide of Native children, within a couple of weeks of doing that, they buckled. The government started issuing noises of apology in the spring of 2008 because we went, went for their jugular. We went for what mattered to them. Their public image and the collection plate on Sundays. We've affected and attacked their public image and their money. And that, that was their weak point. And it doesn't matter how much money they had. It doesn't matter that they represented the oldest corporation on the planet, the Vatican. We had them by the knackeries because we struck at what they loved and where they were weak. So that's very important to do in civil disobedience or planning anything. Achieve that inner humility and willingness to learn and willingness to stand outside everything you've known and then go for what what is the weak point in their system. Now, Sun Tzu goes about this on and on in The Art of War, and we don't have the time right here, but I really urge you, at the back of our Common Law Training Manual and the Whistleblower Manual, by yours truly, you can find 50 excerpts from Sun Tzu, which are very important to read, so I urge you to do that. So let's say, you know, uh, and the example I love to give is people have for the last year, people like No New Normal, uh, Unify the People, all of these groups, these Internet-created groups, show up and they hold protests and they do car rallies and they drive around and say no masking and they stand outside government buildings that are all closed with placards. You see, they've achieved nothing because what they're doing is they're operating on the terms of the system, on its assumptions. The big assumption is that if you protest enough, it'll respond and things will change. No, we're in a new society. Industrial capitalism required liberal democracy, the appearance, to create controlled political opposition, to give the system an outlet. We're not in, in, in liberal capitalism anymore. We're in a corporatocracy, a single global corporation that doesn't need the semblances of democracy and voting and courts anymore. That's all gone. We're in a new ball of wax, and we have to learn the nature of that system or it'll destroy you. And that's the two basic maxims of war, according to Sun Tzu, war and life is that you must know the nature of your enemy and you must know your own nature. And if you don't know either, you're lost. And I find that situation now. People don't realize what they're opposing, and that's their first weakness. Now, don't forget, too, that any situation can help us. And a hopeless situation actually strengthens us because people's backs are to the wall and right now, and when that happens, they realize they have no option but to fight and resist. But resistance needs to be much more than pushing against something, because all you're doing by doing that is feeding it. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, the way we really overcome a system is by ignoring it, by pulling our energy out of it. That's the essence of civil disobedience, non-cooperation. Non-cooperation is really a separation and creation of something else. People say, how do you enforce the laws? Well, you enforce laws passed in your common law republic assemblies by just acting. You take off the muzzles. You don't distance. You don't quarantine 
You don't take the shot. You live under a new law, and by doing that, you weaken the old and cause it to collapse because the system is vampiric on our energy. It feeds off us. We withdraw that, and we start a counter-momentum, and we can create a real alternative and a revolutionary change. It doesn't take a lot of people to start that. And that's why I really don't want to hear from any of you anymore saying, there's only one or two of us. What can we do? Well, one or two is a lot. It's not the numbers. It's the nature of those one or two people. Have they found their own power? Are they willing to act on it? And then you create a huge ripple of change. I've found that in my own life for the last 25 years. The proof's in the pudding. I'm still alive. (laughs) Okay. So the next thing we're going to do is go into that more in a spiritual direction. And we're going to hear a reflection I... Uh, I gave um, two years ago, almost two years ago, during uh, the Advent season in the Christian liturgy. It's uh, December 2019, where they were looking at the whole uh, approach to Christmas and the announcement of John the Baptist, his announcement that Jesus was coming. And by Jesus, he didn't simply mean the person, but the revolution that his spirit and new world represented in the world. The turning away from the old world of violence and evil and the creation and standing in something that was already here, the kingdom of heaven amidst us and among us. We're going to hear that reflection now, and after that we'll do a discussion of how we can relate those lessons to our situation now. How do we apply it now in our struggle to disestablish the police state and create a spiritual republic? We're going to hear that reflection now, and then we'll be back. Hi again, everyone. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice, and I'm today giving you another sermon from the Covenanters, a separatist political and spiritual movement of which I am a minister. And it's part of a series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of scripture for refugees from false religion. Today's sermon is for the upcoming second Sunday in Advent, December 8th, 2019. It's taken from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 and it's entitled, The Divine Slash and Burn. The theme taken from the words of John the Baptist, repent and change for the kingdom of heaven is here now. Prepare a clear way for God and remove all obstacles, for the axe is already chopping and the deadwood is being thrown into the fire. Well, the local West Coast people called him Crazy Charlie. He was a Coast Salish Indian who lived years ago as a hermit in the wilderness of Valdez Island. At night, Charlie would creep out through the dense underbrush and cut down old-growth cedar trees with a chainsaw. Then he'd pile them all up and put them to the torch. (laughs) That went on for a few years until the Mounties finally caught up with him and put him away where so many other Indians end up. The cops claimed that Charlie was an ex-logger and a psycho, but nobody ever heard from Charlie himself why exactly it was that he went around chopping down and burning up the forest. Well, I thought about Charlie and his people, when I read today's Gospel reading of John the Baptist announcing the coming of Christ. That tale, like the lives of Native people, fits last week's biblical message of the sudden ending of one world and the beginning of another. Because that's exactly what happened, of course, to West Coast Indigenous people in barely 50 years during the early 19th century. Most of their society was wiped out that quickly by our churches, by our germ warfare, by our cannon fire, leaving refugees like Crazy Charlie to stumble through the ruins. Well, in today's Gospel lesson, a similar ending is announced by a guy a lot like Charlie, a lonely hermit and refugee from society who's on a mission, a man we know as John the Baptist. 
Well, John hung out in the wilderness of Judea, on the margins of society, just like Charlie did, because that's the only place where divine truth can really be heard. The babble of the city is never a home for prophets. And there in the freedom of space, John tells his listeners that the ending of all that they know has actually begun. If they want to survive what's happening, they'll have to change their ways now, not tomorrow. They'll have to repent. That's the word he uses. They've got to repent, and that means clearing away and bringing down everything inside ourselves and outside ourselves that stands in the way of a new world called the kingdom of heaven. It also means welcoming the one who's inaugurating that world, the man called Jesus the Christ. Well, repent is a really significant word in Scripture. It's, in fact, the first word ever spoken in the Gospels, the first directive and exhortation given in Jesus' work. Repentance sets the tone for all of Jesus' subsequent teachings. It's really like the first word spoken in an exorcism, when the evil spirit is named and ordered to stop what it's doing. In the same way, the possession of our minds and lives by an anti-God world spirit must first be broken and walked away from, if any kind of change is going to be possible in us. That's in fact the way that the early Christians saw their baptisms, not as a ritual, but as a spiritual cleansing and exorcism that permanently separated them from a satanic world of lies and violence and made them citizens of heaven. But what does that word repent actually mean? Well, that depends whether you read the Greek or the Hebrew. Greek is a language of the New Testament, and it understands repentance as just a change in one's philosophical attitude, like, as in, I was wrong, I need to look at things differently now. Repentance in Greek is the word metanoiste, and it simply means to think different. But in Hebrew, it's interesting because in Hebrew, to repent is to do something radically different, to do something. The Hebrew word for repent is Shabbat, and it means to turn and walk away from something in a totally new direction, in other words, to be different. And so while the words of John the Baptist have come down to us through the Greek language, The spirit and meaning behind his words, just like Jesus' own words, is thoroughly Hebrew. John is calling people to action, to live radically different lives, since a new world has already begun among them. In a way, it makes it easy. It's like the new world is here. Just join it. You don't have to create it. It's here. Walk in, folks. But what then are people supposed to do, according to John the Baptist? Well, when you look at the complete Greek translation, here's what he says. Clear a way for God and make his way straight and righteous. Remove every obstacle to God in order to make his presence and way possible. So there's that interesting partnership between us and God. It's initiated by God, but it depends on our response, our action. Grace, faith. The key words of the Protestant Reformation. Well, in other words, the new world has arrived, as we've said, but to receive it and to make it possible We have to remove anything blocking or preventing it in ourselves, in the world. That is what repenting looks like in practice, not just in theory. Well, this call to change by John to his listeners is really a preamble to a bigger drama. What becomes obvious as the story in Matthew 3 unfolds is that the real decisive action is coming from God. We have to step out of the clutter and blockage in our lives, but only in order to receive the transformation that God is establishing. God is the author and creator of the new world, not we by ourselves, 
even though we're partners with God in the effort. In other words, heaven has launched a revolution, and everything not of God is coming down, present tense. You notice all of this is present tense. It's an occurrence occurring now. In other words, because of this revolution, it's time for each one of us to make a choice, because guess what, folks? There's no middle ground. As John proclaims, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we have no better proof of that than looking around these days at the increasing exposure of crimes within the official Christian churches. It's coming down. This cataclysmic language of a divine slashing and burning only intensifies when Jesus himself enters the story. According to John, the Christ will, quote, baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He will make clean his thresher, gather the wheat into the barn, and burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. The heart is an organ of love, they say, so is God. In other words, that passion of Christ and the new world that is here now is separating people. It's gathering God's chosen ones together, will destroy the others and all that other stuff, like so much refuse. That's a process that the people of Jesus' time could really understand, since most of them were peasants or landless peasants, and they slashed and burned their crops to replenish the earth every year and to survive. From out of that burning came renewed life. They all knew that. And as in nature, so in heaven. Well, uh, this biblical account of Matthew is a death and life language of conflict and separation and ending. It represents the hard truth of how genuine change actually occurs. The old has to be purged for the new to arise. That's true within us. That's true around us. Ironically, though, that's not the kind of message that's very palatable or understandable for a lot of us, especially if we're fed on the spiritual pablum and false words of official Christianity. Those words seek to bolster and maintain our present life at the expense of our eternal life. And so not surprisingly, and just like last week's gospel message, once again the Christian Church's official contrivance called the weekly lectionary, their choice of the things you're going to hear in church, that lectionary stepped in again to edit and gut today's reading. This Sunday's Christian congregations will not hear all of Matthew chapter 3, but only the part up to verse 12. The finale to the chapter from verses 13 to 17 has been totally cut out. Now this is really strange because... That Those last verses are a vital part of the story. In fact, probably the most vital part. They describe the baptism of Jesus himself and his adoption by God. They say, And when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens were opened unto him, and John saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon Jesus. And a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, In truth, all of John the Baptist's words until then are a prelude to and the reason for this foundation event, where Jesus the man is claimed and named by God as the Christ, the first of the chosen remnant who will comprise the new kingdom of heaven, or in Jesus' Aramaic language, the realm of eternity. But the church lectionary has cut all of this out. Now, why would they do that? Well, I have a simple answer based on experience, (laughs) because the church hierarchy has always been threatened by the true biblical message, which is one of liberation from below, not conformity imposed from above. 
God has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. Blessed are those who are poor now, for they shall be satisfied. But woe unto those who are rich, for they have received their satisfaction. What you do to the least of my people, you do to me. And these are the words of Jesus right out of Scripture. And they embody the same spirit of liberation that broke the chains of Hebrew slaves and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. And that spirit speaks of God's plan of a new society where there is no higher low, no rich or poor, but one community of equality and love. Or as John the Baptist said, God will even all the rough places and every mountain will be brought low so that all mankind may see the glory of God together as one. Well, this kind of complete equality is what the first Christian communities actually embodied. As Paul describes in the book of Acts when he writes, And all those who were in Christ were of one mind and heart. They claimed nothing for themselves, but held all their possessions in common, so that there were no poor persons among them. That is repentance and love in practice. The true gospels and mind of God always bend toward that kind of human liberation. Well, such a liberating God could only choose his, as his beloved son someone born in poverty, the child of a scandalized, unwed mother like Mary, the poor, landless peasant named Eshua, or Jesus in Greek. Not a king or a rich, favored son, but one plucked anonymously from the crowd. Well, quite simply, if I had uttered this same claim a few centuries ago, Namely, that Jesus wasn't born divine, but was a poor peasant adopted by God and appointed as the first of a new line of humanity? Well, frankly, people, I would have been handed a one-way trip to an Inquisition barbecue. Because then or now, what terrifies religious potentates is the message that the poor are chosen by God, that God is the sovereign maker of history and social change, that God is an active force in our lives and can raise even the most destitute man or woman to glory. That fact does away with any need for wealthy churches or sacraments or doctrine or for so-called popes or bishops or priests who falsely pretend to speak for God and mediate truth to the rest of us. The church has substituted itself for God and so must deny God's real presence in practice. But as John the Baptist proclaims and reminds us, God is present here and now. God breaks through all of that. God is breaking open a new pathway for the pure of heart by cutting down everything that's rotten and dead in our world and throwing all of it into a fire of judgment. Well, I had a remarkable experience of that power some years ago in the company of people like Charlie, our Veldez Island tree cutter. The incident took place, ironically, in a big Catholic cathedral in downtown Vancouver. What happened there made history and changed history, thanks to God. Well, there were 50 of us outside the church that Sunday morning in March of 2008. Most of us were native men and women who had endured torture and worse at what the killers still call Indian residential schools. We were there in the spirit of many children who were murdered at the hands of the Church of Rome and buried in secret. We were there to demand their remains back and to name those who killed them and who are still killing children. Well, I knew there was a hidden hand at work that day when the usual gang of church thugs and Vancouver cops who routinely guarded the front church entrance from our protests, they were all absent that day. There was no one there, just a door standing wide open. Well, to paraphrase John the Baptist, and this is what occurred to me at the time, the path had definitely been cleared, definitely been cleared that morning and the obstacles were removed from us. So I said to people, let's go. I felt that same hidden hand guide me and the 15 others into the yawning mouth of that cathedral. And even then, 
That force we felt swept us into the cluttered church where people sang hymns to what they thought was God. We hoisted our banner that read, All the children need a proper burial, and turned to face the congregation. The priests were dumbstruck and immobilized. They didn't know what to do. And in the power of truth, we began to speak to them about their church's crimes and the dead thing they inhabited that needed to be brought down. Sure enough, the church did come down. I felt it that day in Holy Rosary Cathedral like a rotten tree falling to the ground. The criminal buckled quickly after that, actually within a week. Because the next week, after our occupation of the cathedral had made headlines across Canada, the government announced an inquiry into missing residential school children for the first time, and eventually, what came out of that, a so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, run by the criminals themselves. But even those duplicitous attempts at official containment and cover-up have all failed. The truth has finally been known, because like in any exorcism, the evil spirit had been named for what it is and it started on that day. Ever since then, the false, child-killing Christian churches have been exposed for what they are. Everywhere, they are losing their credibility and collapsing, as they should, like chaff being separated and burned in a huge fire of judgment. On that Sunday in March of 2008, a crowd of impoverished Indians imbued with the truth cleared the way for God to bring down the oldest lie on our planet. The hand of God was with us that day toppling the mighty from their thrones and filling the righteous poor with a new spirit. That same Holy Spirit that adopted Jesus continues to reverberate and grow and open new pathways to the realm of eternity that, that is among us, working to discard and destroy the old corruption. While, well, friends, that divine separation is upon us now, its presence terrifies some of us, those who are chaff, and gives hope to others who are the good wheat. Jesus says later in the Gospels that he didn't come to bring peace to humanity, but instead a sword of judgment, to divide people and set them against each other, and to let light a fire on the earth. That's what the truth always does, whether it's in a family, in a church, or in the world. It consumes all of our lies and crimes in the face of a higher love that midwives a new world into being. But so few of us are willing to repent from this present world of death and suffer such division, to suffer the loss of friends and loved ones, and face the terrible, inevitable persecution and crucifixion that comes simply for that love and for that truth. Many of us are called to that purpose, but few can ever do God's will. But those few who can and do are the seeds of the new world, and God knows and protects his own. But is it really possible? Can heaven reach out even to you and me and ask us to be part of this transformation? Just as Jesus asked John to baptize him and help join God with mankind, will we hesitate and disbelieve such an invitation as John did at first? Or will we welcome the great fire that destroys and creates? Well, that choice is choice yours. Is your. But make it now, for the way of God has arrived. I'm Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. More to come. Thank you. Well, there's the message, folks. And like everything, words are fine. It's all in the doing. And it was always frustrating, you know. <laughs> in a way, I was glad I was tossed out of the church for doing the right thing. Because on Sundays, you get up there in the pulpit, and you'd speak from the heart. I remember whenever I preached, I felt a a great simplicity come over me, that kind of intentional 
knowing of why I was there. Just try to reflect the message in my own heart and that I saw around me every day of the week, the work I was doing. The best lessons I ever got for sermons are actually from watching my daughters, my infant daughters, and the ways they were teaching me about God and creation. And I tried to reflect that in the sermons, and people would have these momentary reactions. Actually, it was funny. Some people would get up and leave and be angry, and others would be in tears, because I was talking something real. I wasn't just talking theology and Bible talk. It was real. It reflected something in their own life that they knew. And then the most basic thing is that division and conflict are part of what we go through every day. And as part of that separating in our own selves, you know, the way that we die to these things that we clung to for so long, it's a violent process. But out of that violence, like in birth, which is a violent process, or so they tell me, they see through that violence the birth of all of us. None of us could come into the world without that violent process of birth. And it's the same now as we evolve into a spiritual rebirth. Now, the words are easy. It's the doing that a lot of people find difficult if they haven't made that transition. And in a way, there's nothing we can do to help another person to do that. It's got to be based on their own choices and experience. But we can light a path, just like John the Baptist said, clear the path. And we've tried to do that over the last year, especially in the struggle to build on the awakening that's happened among people as the corporate tyranny, this antichrist, satanic world system that's now taken over everything and demanding the loyalty of everyone. Now that its mask has fallen, we can all see it for what it is. That's caused a lot of people to have a certain awakening, but within the parameters of their own thinking. They haven't, and it was our mistake, to address our whole movement in a predominantly political way rather than what we're trying to do now on this show and through our work, which is like a double helix, intertwining the spiritual and the political, the inner and the outer at all times. No false dichotomy there. Now, as we do that, we know that we have to set an example. And one of the ways we've doing that is, first of all, as Thoreau talked about and John the Baptist talks about, our most basic weapon against this tyranny, this global tyranny, tyranny is our active withdrawal from it. We won't feed it any longer either by our thoughts, our taxes, our votes, our consumption, or even our overt opposition. We can't think about it anymore. Turn off the Internet. Take action in your own life to recover that identity. Our non-involvement in the spirit of this beast lays the basis for its collapse because it has no inherent power besides what it takes from us. That's the nature of Antichrist. It is literally, literally no thing. It's a debt idol that symbiotically lives off humanity by gaining our adherence to it through deception, through upbringing, through fear. But, of course, simply knowing this doesn't allow us to separate from it unless our own soul and mind have been gone through that kind of liberation that we talked about during the sermon. That is an inner exorcism, as was embodied by the early Christians, although they didn't call themselves Christians. When they recognize that when you're born into this world, you're in a state of possession. You're possessed by the spirit of the world. You have to be broken from it through an act of God and then respond in faith by living separately, living in our own communities. This is the process we're beginning to do now across Canada more and more. We are separating from the system, especially we're getting our children out of the cities. We're getting back into land-based communities, and we've started to actively build them across Canada. And we're doing that in conjunction with activities in other countries. We're especially in touch with communities like that in France, in England, in northern Italy, 
in the U.S. and across Canada. We're building these active links of how to live not only spiritually and mentally separate from the system, but physically as well, relying on that independence. Because it's only from that place of independence that we can take action in the world. It's like really a threefold process. The first is separation through an act of God, through our own response to that act of God by claiming that new life for ourselves. Secondly, we're purified in the process. We grow and mature. Like I talked about earlier, we enter into battle, we learn from it. We learn our mistakes. We learn how to grow. We learn how to endure and move on. We're much stronger having gone through the battle. The poor souls are the ones who fall away in fear and run, because then they never learn anything. They just keep their chains fastened around their head, their minds, and their lives. That purification is the second part. And the third part, as Sun Tzu says so many times, you establish your own ground, but only after you're free. You create those liberated zones all over the place, establishing our own communities as a physical sign of a new world, that what Jesus called the realm of eternity here in our midst. Now, there's two little time in this show to go into the details of how we're doing that. We're trying to reflect that on our websites, especially republicofcanada.ca. And we're in a process of reorganization. One of the things that we're doing a lot is gathering the people in the ones and twos and helping them with that inner transformation and liberation to allow the outer to go on. Of course, it's a twofold process. It doesn't just happen within and then manifest without. Often through our struggles in the world, we're led to the recognition that politics is not enough. We have to take that inner life seriously, but combine the two and get away between that false distinction. We have to reclaim the whole world, starting with ourselves, because if we don't, the human race is finished. We are in a final battle for existence. Well, let's be clear that by creating that new authority alongside the old one, and that's what we're doing, we're creating a state of civil war. We're declaring independence at every level from the system. And, you know, I think the system can deal much more with us withholding taxes and withholding our thoughts and our inner allegiance, because as soon as we break that, everything else falls away too, and it knows it. That's why it tries to keep our minds hooked in and our allegiance hooked in through fear and brainwashing and your reliance on the little box in front of you called the Internet. Anyway, when we establish that new authority alongside the old one, even momentarily when we nullify the spirit of the adversary, like when we entered that church and reclaimed the space and blew open their lie, When we do that, we're entering into a state of permanent civil war, politically and spiritually. We're drawing a line and separating ourselves from the past. Now, we've got to do that on the basis of passion. I don't see a revulsion going on, folks. You know, when I found out that there were little children buried in the ground a mile from where I lived, and it would happen at the hands of my church, I couldn't be part of it anymore. Even if they hadn't thrown me out, I would have left. What moral individual could be part of that? I'm still as revolted and disgusted with this system. It abhors me. It isn't some intellectual defiance, because that can be easily co-opted. It's a disgust. I cannot be part of this. And then with the same passion, I must and be part of something new that comes from the heart that's good and true. And it's that passion that leads us through many battles and allows us to survive any number of attacks. Those who have an intellectual, a purely intellectual commitment to what we're doing, they don't last. 
because they can be dissuaded. Our mind, I remember one of the people I worked with, a Native woman in the downtown east side, Carol Martin, said, our minds are our biggest deceivers. They're, that's how they control us, but they can't control our heart mind, our inner consciousness that they don't have access to. Well, all of this is leading up, and we've got a few minutes left, but I want to just close on this, that this is all about evolution, taking seriously our own personal sovereignty, political sovereignty, spiritual sovereignty. A sovereign is someone who is ruled only by their own laws and nobody else and nothing else. That's the way all of us are born. That's what the system is trying to crush out of each one of us. So the next time you're stopped by a cop or someone trying to put a muzzle in your face, say, by what authority are you asking me to kill myself and go against God's law of self-reliance? By what authority? Show me the statute. That's all you need to say. Answer their question with a counter-question and withdraw in that way from any kind of dependence on their system. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to go into this more. We're going to have other people on describing their concrete experiences of building this new autonomous society alongside the old crumbling one. You can follow our work, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.ca, that's K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofcanada.ca. Write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. This is Kevin Anna at Eagle Strong Voice. Carry it on. We're going to go off on a really good song from the civil rights era called Carry It On. Thank you, friends.